0: My guest is Sophia Besh. Sophia Besh is a Europe Fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace Think Tank, headquartered here in Washington DC. Welcome to the podcast, Sophia.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Right, we're going to talk about Germany because uh, you are an expert on that and maybe informally this whole podcast will be understanding Germany from a from a non-German, shall we say. I'm going to ask you first, if you wouldn't mind talking a bit about the state of German domestic politics and. Uh, Give us a flavour, if you wouldn't mind, of the the current state of the coalition. Uh, How cohesive, how fractious is it as we speak?
1: Yeah, of course. I mean, Olaf Scholz, uh, our chancellor uh, from the Social Democratic Party, is in a three-way coalition with the Green Party and the uh, Liberal Democrats. And it's not an easy coalition, (laughs) I have to say. I mean, they disagree on quite a few issues. They disagree quite publicly. Um, And it's been uh, a pretty turbulent ride so far, Um, which means I think, uh, since we're broadcasting to not just the Germans, which means that uh, the Chancellor has to spend quite a bit of time finding agreement domestically and has a little bit less capacity of being engaged in finding agreement on the European stage or the international stage.
0: And this kind of coalition, if I'm not mistaken, is, is, is relatively rare, where you have partners to the right of you, to the left of you, right? The FDP and the Greens. We haven't, You haven't had in Germany this kind of coalition for quite some time.
1: That's right, this sort of three-way coalition. We've had a, a grand coalition for uh, many, many years um, between the Social Democrats and the Conservatives. But yeah, trying to find agreement between three partners politically is always going to be difficult. And, you know, the Social Democrats and the Greens, again, if we're talking international themes, which I assume your listenership will be most interested in, they agree on on a lot of things. They agree on the importance of Europe. They agree on the importance of the green transition. The Liberal Democrats, the FDP, um, they're a bit more conservative fiscally. Um, which obviously has consequences for their positioning in Europe. And they're also under quite a bit of strain. Um, Their polling numbers aren't great, which means that they sort of double down on some of their traditional hard line, (laughs) red lines, if you will, um, which are mostly sort of in the fiscal space and in the debt reduction space. So that has consequences for Germany's Europe policy too.
0: Well, it seems that Olaf Scholz seems to get a a bad press, rightly or wrongly, also partially because of his his demeanour, his manner, his persona, the way he conducts himself, the way he talks in public. You know, maybe there's an element of, you know, after all these years of Angela Merkel, you know, it's a hard act to follow. But is is there substance, nonetheless, behind that rather quiet, uh, uh, unassuming, and some would say uninspiring exterior?
1: Yeah, I mean, Germans... Uh, we don't prize particularly strong personalities in our leaders highly (laughs) charisma is not something that you need to become a german politician but you're right of course that he has very large footsteps to follow um and angela merkel we all remember wasn't particularly charismatic Either, But what people will often say is that she spent a lot of time consolidating positions, consulting with her allies, consulting with her opponents. Um, She spent a lot of time communicating internally (laughs) to come to a shared position. And it looks like Scholz is prioritizing that a bit less, is sort of rallying around a quite uh, close-knit team of advisors and making decisions quite centrally uh, in the chancellery. Um, which, yeah,
0: has consequences beyond that. Okay. We'll talk, and I'll ask you in a moment, about the famous uh, Zeitenwender speech he gave a few months ago uh, when we talked about in a moment about Germany's role on the world stage. But before we do that, I'd like to ask you also about Germany's traditional role in Europe. This, this thesis amongst academics and think tankers like yourself about Germany is a reluctant hegemon. Sure. It has a leadership role, which it doesn't really want, but it's stuck with it because it's such a big, big <laughs> political and economic power. But also, you know, the Franco-German axis, right, which people still talk about some quarters very fondly. Is it, is it functioning pretty well? Is there a, a good rapport between Emmanuel Macron and Olaf Schultz, or is it something which needs constant nurturing?
1: Yeah, two big, two big questions So Germany's (laughs) role in Europe and then Germany's important relationships, particularly with France. Uh, So the reluctant hegemon or reluctant leader is uh, something that Germans in particular, I think, have embraced because it suits our idea of leadership as something that our allies are requesting from us and not something that we would voluntarily do. (laughs) Right. Right. And there is some... um, it can get a little bit hypocritical, <laughs> I think, because uh, as you know, Germany is a powerful country in Europe that often leads by default. But it's interesting how this chancellor is framing it. He often speaks about zusammenführen, which is um, right. this together, verb, right. yes, leading together. But there is a little bit of a play play of words in there in German because zusammenführen can mean leading together and it can also bring merging or bringing together right Right. so he wants to lead with others but not just in the sense of leading from the middle leading from the center but also in the sense of forging alliances I think that is his ideal Um, that is what we would like to see from him certainly and sometimes that has worked and sometimes that hasn't (laughs) in the past uh, year or so I think when it comes to the important alliances i mean it's obviously a a truism that the the franco-german alliance is at the heart of europe nothing happens without these two agreeing (laughs) Um, and i think i mean frankly that relationship isn't in a great state i don't think that these two leaders gel particularly well is that a question of personality or a
0: different vision of
1: europe both i think so personality is something that you could overcome i think Mm. same with merkel and macron and we've we've often seen the franco-german relationship sort of starting out a little bit more um difficult and then the leaders easing into it because they're aware of their responsibilities in europe their shared responsibilities so far i think these two still haven't made that transition into a more constructive relationship. And there's lots of reasons for that. I think there are domestic reasons for both of them why they haven't been um, able to prioritize prioritize that relationship and prioritize those links. There's also some disagreements between Paris and Berlin on issues like the value of nuclear power, mm-hmm. uh, like the future of debt and fiscal policy in Europe, and also most recently on the future of European defense and the relationship with the United States, mm. uh, right? Just how closely knit should Europe be with the U.S. when it comes to its defense policy? And I think particularly Macron's comments in Taiwan have, mm. uh, over Taiwan yeah. in China, have have angered quite a few people in Berlin because there is this fear of, of alienating the U.S. with this talk of of strategic autonomy. So there's also skepticism of Macron's uh, domestic legitimacy and credibility uh, in all of Europe. But I don't think we can, I mean, for better or for worse, these two will have to find a way to work together. And actually on some of the big issues, they do agree, right? They agree on the need for enlargement. They agree on the need for EU reform. They agree broadly on Ukraine. Um, so there's a basis there to work together, and I think there's also potential uh, in terms of investing in the people-to-people links that you need between Paris and, and Berlin to make this relationship work. We have a whole new set of actors in Berlin after yeah. you know 16 years of of the similar people. So these people also have had to find find their footing uh, in their international relationships. I would just say one last thing, um, which is that. Sometimes I think we focus a bit too much on the Franco-German relationship at the expense of looking at the other important relationships in Europe. One of them, I think, that is in a particularly bad state right now, is the relationship between Germany and Poland. Okay. Um, And Poland, of course, over the course of the war in Ukraine, has really found its voice in, Mm. in Europe, and the concerns of Central and Eastern European states have become much more important. And I'm not trying to make the case that we've seen a huge shift in the center of gravity. I think the demographic and economic and political conditions uh, will still favor the big Western European countries. But because of the amount of, I think, resentment and distrust between Warsaw and Berlin, that might actually hinder progress in Europe on quite a few issues. So. You know we see warsaw continuously accusing berlin of still not being tough enough on russia which is based on just mm. the distrust in germany's russia policy over the last few years we see berlin going after poland on rule of law issues and let me give you one example of where that might play out uh in a bad way for europe and that's the issue of eu reform right mm. so france and germany want to link eu reform of decision-making processes to enlargement Poland also wants enlargement, but it doesn't want EU reform, right? Warsaw has said repeatedly that they want to preserve their veto, they don't want to allocate more powers to the EU, they want to bring powers back to the member state level, and I think that's because they don't trust Western European powers, (laughs) they don't uh, want to be outvoted. And if we don't manage to fix that relationship between Warsaw and Berlin and, and insert a little bit more trust there, then I think some of the big uh, ambitious projects for Europe that Berlin and Paris are planning will be, uh, will be hindered by that.
0: Is that partially also the, the sensitivity for Poland around uh, the vulnerability also for Poland around issues of the rule of law itself? People tend to focus on Viktor Orban and Hungary, of course, but Poland is also in the in the firing line in some areas, no?
1: Yeah, that's right, absolutely. And that is a difficult topic between Berlin and, and Warsaw, right, because it's all overshadowed by the, the Ukraine war and mm. the need, I think rightly so, of Germans to prove that they have learned their lessons out of that. Mm. But at the same time, you know, we're, we're in D.C. here where Poland currently has a pretty good standing as the one European country that is investing sufficiently in yeah. defense, right? right. Um, and Washington, we both know this, sometimes finds it easy to disregard certain things that yeah. they cared about before and zoom in on, on this one issue, right? So for Poland, they're currently zooming in on the country's role in, uh, in the war. Uh, in Ukraine and sort of disregarding what they used to focus on more, which is the rule of law issues. Now, Berlin can't really do that. (laughs) Berlin still has, um, with the Greens in particular, a, a party in power that cares a lot about the rule of law, that cares a lot about democracy. And they're closely aligned, I think, with von der Leyen in the Commission's Um, current going after Poland and Hungary on rule of law issues using the recovery fund so these these things are are in the way of a better relationship. And on
0: this issue of reform and enlargement you said just now that on the main issues France and Germany tend to agree. Uh, This may be a bit of a side issue, it may be non-issue but let me Put it to you anyway. This this uh, concept of Emmanuel Macron, the European political community. Yeah. One hears that Germany is not particularly supportive. It's annoyed by the initiative. It wasn't consulted. That's what one hears, maybe wrongly, uh, but it's going along. It has no has a certain a certain momentum uh, behind. As you know, they're meeting next next week in Moldova for the second time. A couple of questions. The EPC, as is called. Is something which is viable and 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 needed and useful. Or is it something which has effectively been dismissed by many quarters as a, as a typical, you know, Macron vanity project?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. So I think on paper, the EPC has real potential, right, <laughs> for a few reasons, bringing in third countries. We all acknowledge that the EU's enlargement process doesn't work, right? It's, right. It's both as my colleague Tom Neval says both too political and too technical right um, and we've been leaving countries in these grey zones for too long so it clearly needs reform and i think the idea the drive be, behind the epc as a forum of engaging partner countries engaging third countries on on specific sectoral is, issues is really promising the same with the uk in fact <laughs> there's yeah, yeah, there's yeah. potential there too right now we are at a moment in time where, when an initiative comes from Emmanuel Macron, that doesn't necessarily make it easier for that initiative to thrive. Um, And we also know that the first meeting of the EPC was dismissed by many as mostly a a talking shop, right? right? And if I look at Berlin and how the EPC is talked about there, I think it's not, I mean, you called it a non-issue, but it's not a a particular priority for them to go up against it as long as it remains a bit of a talking shop. Right? yeah yeah <laughs> so it, it's just not particularly high on, on the agenda I think there right now which is maybe a shame because maybe uh, investment by the major powers could turn this <laughs> into something but maybe I'm being I'm being too optimistic
0: okay let's that move a bit then towards uh, Germany and its global role global vocation and, and maybe for my own education uh, give me a kind of status not so much a status report but how people now feel about Olaf Scholz' famous now famous site speech and the more recent the national security strategy maybe you could <laughs> Take some time to give, put me straight and educate me on what that's all about.
1: Sure. I mean, I I feel like most people have had to learn more than they ever wanted to learn about <laughs> <laughs> the German Seitenwender. <laughs> so I feel a bit bad droning on about it. But uh, as you know, this speech, um, well, maybe something that I think we still sometimes get wrong. Yeah. <laughs> this speech... Uh, is often, Zeitenwenden is often translated as a a turning point, right? a turning point for German foreign and defense policy. Really what the chancellor was doing in this speech was describing what he saw and not talking necessarily in the first place about Germany, but describing what he saw, which was a changing of the times outside of Germany, right? right. Um, And then said that Germany would need to adapt to that. that, Um, And he talked about basically three big baskets, Russia policy. Uh, energy policy and defense policy and we can measure progress on all of these i think um, we all know by now that site and vendor is going not as fast as many would have liked um, but also maybe that was to be expected, because it's a it's a huge endeavor.
0: Did he overreach? Was he too uh, ambitious? To use a kind of diplomatic word in his yeah, speech?
1: I think we really do have to distinguish between uh, the the three baskets, right? Because on energy policy, Germany acted pretty quickly and pretty decisively to reduce um, its dependence to on reduce Russian its gas. dependence on Russia. Not necessarily completely voluntarily. We all know that Russia <laughs> cut off gas first, but here we are now, and and dependency has really gone down to a huge extent. And uh, one reason why that worked so quickly is because of course, uh, energy transition, renewable energies, climate change is a big priority for the Green Party and government, right? So this already chimed with German priorities. The second basket, Russia policy. Um, I think they're, they're related, right? Because it's much um, mm. easier to have a sustainable change in Russia policy if you decrease the energy dependence on Russia. Um, I really do think that there is a real reckoning happening when it comes to Russia in German politics, um, and a reckoning with that idea of interdependencies with Russia, economic and political interdependencies with Russia as security guarantees.
0: Which is very much Angela Merkel's, thesis, which was right.
1: Which was Angela Merkel, which was, but also the the Social Democrats okay. uh, in the in the Cold War, Willy Brandt. Right, <laughs> like, okay. right, that, that was a, a, a kind really of consensus. <laughs> yes, a, a long standing <laughs> idea. And I do think that there's a reckoning happening now. I'm not saying that uh, it has reached all corners of the German political <laughs> establishment, but I can't really see us going back to the kind of naivete with which hmm. we've re- regarded particularly Putin. Right. Um, and it is interesting that uh, German policymakers and politicians have talked about this war as Putin's war from the very beginning, right? Okay. Distinguishing between the Russian president and the Russian people, because you know they're trying to to make clear uh, who this is really about. So that's on Russia policy, on defense policy, which was sort of the the most interesting because it had these flashy headlines. Yeah, of,
0: the figures, yeah.
1: Yeah, <laughs> the special fund, the 100 billion that we're going to be spent. Um, the 2%, um, and then a few others, which we, we forget about now, but Germany's continued participation in nuclear sharing, which was sort okay. of um, under question at the time, <laughs> yeah. really isn't now. Yeah, <laughs> nein, danke. Um, <laughs> yes, and then also um, reassessing arms exports to conflict regions, right? which was always a bit of a taboo. wasn't really, we, we did do it, but it was seen as a taboo <laughs> in German political discourse, and obviously Germany has now sent quite a bit of military aid to Ukraine. But on the figures, uh, the 2% and the 100 billion, this is obviously where Germany is most open to to criticism right. because it just hasn't happened yet. Um, in fact, the special fund, I think in the whole first year, not a euro of that was spent. And why? Because of, uh, well, first politics to bureaucracy, right? It just, this whole system, the German defense procurement system, it's a system set up for peacetime. It's a system um, with lots of. It's a very German system. It takes a long time to get anything through there. It took a long time to get the gears going and get a sense of urgency going. I think in the defense ministry, in the Bundestag, when it came to reviewing the the special fund, um, in the procurement agencies. So I think it is is—it is obviously going to happen. This money is going to be spent, and so that will make a difference for Germany's defense capabilities. Okay. But it's more the fact that it'll make a difference in the future <laughs> than um, having made a difference right now. Um, it'll help, obviously, in terms of providing some planning security for German defense firms. They can invest now. Right. But in terms of the, the messaging that was sent to allies, Obviously, again, we're in in D.C. where the 2% is sort of the golden ticket for any European ally to start a conversation on anything. And the 2% hasn't been reached yet, it probably won't be reached next year, it might be reached the year after that. And so that just doesn't look good. It doesn't look good. But that said, I do think that again, there's a longer term transformation that is happening. Um, Political acceptance of the necessity of defense spending, of the necessity, broad acceptance of the necessity of investing in the German armed forces. We now have a German defense minister who's really trying to reform, I think, Mm. some of that slow bureaucracy that has been holding back some of these efforts. So I do think there is a, a longer term improvement in sight Last point on this, I think we do have to do some expectation management, Can, getting back to that idea of Zusammenführung, right. right, and the what position Germany will take in Europe. Um, this idea of Germany becoming a leader in European defense policy, I think we might people might get disappointed if this is the yeah. <laughs> if this is the standard we're setting right Germany being able to fulfill its uh, commitments to NATO being able to fulfill its commitments to its allies that is sort of the standard that I am setting right now and I'd be very happy if we get there and I do think we are on track if, if slowly
0: and and what about the state of German public opinion is is, is and is coalition allies managing to bring public opinion with them or to the average german say well, well there's a cost of living crisis there we can hardly afford food and heating and then we are spending all this money on defense or do people actually German citizens get it. The world has changed since February of last year.
1: Yeah, I think public opinion is more stable in Germany and and all of Europe, actually, than uh, many would have expected. They do seem to see uh, the point of what their leaders are doing helped by the fact that the energy crisis wasn't as bad in Germany as some would have predicted. Um, Energy prices have gone up, but nobody was freezing in their homes. So um, that certainly helped. Also helped, I think, by the Chancellor's very cautious and careful communication which is frustrating to his allies internationally but which is i think directed and targeted at um, bringing along those citizens who you know lived this pacifist ideal for 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 many decades so it's uh, holding relatively stable for now though of course uh, we can't really make predictions how long it will okay.
0: last. Okay. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you at least briefly a question about Germany and China.
1: Sure.
0: Uh, in the broader context, of course, of any kind of concerted approach by the European, which is difficult, clearly, uh, vis-a-vis China, especially when the United States here, our hosts are sort of breathing down Europe's neck saying, come on board with our view on how to deal with China. Do you, Could you explain how, what is the current situation for for Germany vis-a-vis China. Obviously, historically, it's been a very important uh, market uh, for goods, uh, German goods. Uh, but has that changed dramatically since the since last year, since the invasion of Ukraine?
1: I mean, short answer, no, hasn't changed dramatically. Um, okay. I, I did talk about the lessons learned in terms of the inter- interdependencies with Russia. There were some here and elsewhere that I think we're hoping that Germany would apply those lessons to its dependencies with China. Let me just say that's a much more difficult equation. The dependencies yeah. are much larger. The threat perception is a different one, right, when yeah. it comes to China. Uh, the rise of China isn't inherently threatening to Germany in the same way that it is to the United States, right, who are threatened in their hegemonial positions and who have historic security interests in um, the Indo Pacific and the Asia Pacific. So. We know that Olaf Scholz went to Beijing uh, last year. He brought a big business delegation. Yeah. He got a lot of uh, criticism, pushback for that at the time. It's looking a little bit better in hindsight now that Macron went <laughs> and did even worse. Yeah, right. So, um, uh, But I do think that there is, in all seriousness, a real conversation Happening a constructive and controversial conversation happening in Germany, domestically on China, which I think is is very productive. Honestly, there's okay. there's been a lot of pushback over some of the decisions that Schultz was criticized for, like greenlighting the Costco investment in the Hamburg harbor. There was pushback by almost everyone in his cabinet. The Greens and the the FDP, the Liberals, are are much more hawkish on China than the Social Democrats are. But look, you know this—the the chancery, the the social democrats would say that we're in a—we're not at war with Russia, but we're close to a war with Russia. We yeah. don't—we can't afford uh, cutting all ties with China. Obviously, economically, mm-hmm. the country is incredibly important to Germany. But there is greater understanding, a greater awareness of the risks that come with this, and I think the. Ursula von der Leyen's uh, narrative of de risking um, the relationship with China, prioritizing economic security, is resonating with many policymakers in Berlin as well. Um, and there's a, a few sort of low hanging fruits that you can, yeah. you can um, achieve there, right? When, when it comes to export controls, when it comes to investment mm. controls. So I think we will see some progress on that. We have a China strategy coming soon and i'm realizing now that i never uh, answered your question about the german national security strategy those are the two <laughs> strategies pending and we're all waiting with bated breath but um they've both been delayed right um so we'll wait. So we wait i think the summer uh, broadly is when we can expect them but the fact that the china strategy is delayed is because there's actual you know, controversial conversation. And right. I think it's important between the between the governing parties on their positioning uh, vis-a-vis China. Um, what I'm hoping is that uh, they will prioritize finding a European narrative, right? This is what von der Leyen is trying to do, shaping yeah. a broader European narrative, a more coherent European narrative on China. And last point, um, since we're in the U.S., I think... You know, We've had a speech here by the National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan a few weeks ago where he laid out sort of the U.S. vision for the economic order and and a relationship with China where he picked up on von der Leyen's uh, narrative of de-risking, which I think was a bit of an outstretched hand to Europeans. Okay. Um, and I hope that, that it's read this way in Europe, and yeah. I hope that we can sort of converge on, on this narrative. But I do think it's important also... To do the things that we need to do to de-risk and then be very clear about what the European strategy is here um, because there are some areas but we don't necessarily agree with the US that doesn't yeah. mean that we have to take a European third way and go all Macron <laughs> but there are some areas when it comes to I think particularly the vision for the the international order the value of free trade agreements the value of open economies the breadth of export restrictions to China, to what extent that is necessary, the value of the framing of democracies versus autocracies. Mm-hmm. And Germany is an important voice on all of these questions, right. which is why I think uh, the China strategy is actually going to be relevant.
0: Well, we have to leave it there. Sophia Besch, thank you very much for your time.
1: Thank you. That was fun.